Seeing Red the Pod, episode 60. Can you believe it, ladies? 60 episodes? Oh my gosh. Like always, we're going to discuss the latest Nebraska issues. I'm Stephanie, and here with me today are April and Melody. Hi, ladies. How's it going? Are we going to retire in five episodes? What? (laughs) Are we going to retire at 65? No, there's going to be no retirement left for us. We have to. That's true. You're going to have to work till you're 95. Your arthritic little bones. <laughs> you never get to quit podcasting. It's forever. Oh, that is yeah. so sad. All right. Well, you know, at least I get to be with you guys. Yeah, that does make it better. And that um, so I also think that we're going to have some like okay-ish uh, legislative and congressional districts. So. Hooray for okay-ish. Yeah, it's the best possible outcome we could hope for. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and it's it's mostly I think everybody should give a huge shout out to Senator Wendy DeBoer. She made huge sacrifices to make mm. uh, this happen. I mean, everybody worked hard, but uh, Wendy sacrificed some things in her district. And then uh, Senator Williams, I don't know what his first name is, but um, his district is going. Isn't it Matt Williams, I think so. Yep. Um, Republican state senator. Um, he also made some huge sacrifices to make this happen. So I appreciate that. That's nice. And, you know, I got to say, I did not watch all the hearings the whole time, but I did tune in, you know, kind of here and there. Mm-hmm. And you know who was killing it on the floor? Justin Wayne. Mm. Like, he's just like, okay, great. You participated. But, like, here are the actual numbers. Mm-hmm. And Redistricting is about math. Mm-hmm. Like it's also about the politics, but it is at the most fundamental level. It's about the math. And you're like, we have to go one plus one plus one equals three. And so if everything has to be three, you only have two over here. You have one over here. You have seven over here. So like, how do we get to three? Walk me through it, folks. Mm-hmm. You know, like he's a, I thought he handled things really well. Um, I'm not always his biggest fan, but I thought on this particular, you know, I think he was, he served the body well as the vice chair. And I Mm -hmm. thought he really, he was really working his tail off to get their maps. So I was impressed. Yeah. I was really impressed by Steve Lathrop. So, Mm -hmm. you know. Well, he was around the last time they did just redistricting, mm-hmm. wasn't he? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he's like one of the like two or three that what that mm-hmm. were. Which and that's that institutional knowledge to, we lose when we have those term limits. Problem with term limits. No, I want to say like I. So I'm from Iowa, right? So we got they got freaking Chuck Grassley, who's 88 and says he's running again. Uh. 88. He has been in the Senate long as long as my entire life. I'm 41. 
It's just going to keep running. And people are, you know, and so I have family there who are like, term limits, term limits. And I'm like, yeah, but I mean, like, there's a limit. Like, it doesn't have to be two terms. Doesn't that to be right. you know eight well, years? I got, but, I got. You know, tell maybe you. forty-five is a lot too many. Yeah. I got to <laughs> tell you, I really appreciate term limits when it comes to the gubernatorial race that'll be happening next year. I'm just going to put it out there. I'm a little <laughs> grateful <laughs> for that one. Oh, well, yeah, I think when it comes to the executive, a shorter term limit does not hurt you as much right. as when it comes to the pe- the policy makers, the legislative bodies. The executives yeah. are not the policy makers. Congress, legislatures, like they mm-hmm. are in the weeds of really complicated, right. wonky, wonky stuff. And eight years, I mean, it takes them four years just to even figure out where their office is and yeah. how the legislature works. Mm-hmm. And that's why the judicial branch is so long. It's some of those are lifetime appointments. Right. Like, so I don't, I mean, a lifetime in the legislature does certainly no. seem too long. And yes. with money being as powerful as it is, it's somewhat inauthentic to say the people just get to vote you out when we want you out. Absolutely. Because we know how incumbents and the money work. So that's not totally, like that's how it should work. But we know that's not how it actually works due to the influence of powerful moneyed interests and incumbent advantages. Um, there's got to be a middle road there. Yeah. There's just got to be a middle road. I'm going to bring up one more point. A big part of it has to be what Kate High was talking about a few episodes back about we have yep. to have reform of um, political donations and this dark money mm-hmm. crap. Yeah. Nebraska is one of the worst states. And she talks directly on there about how it's directly tied to problems in the legislature. Right. Yep. No, I agree. I agree. So mm-hmm. that's uh, my thinking. I'm just relieved it's not as bad as it could be. I haven't had a good look at the Regent map or the PSC map or the map. Yeah. So Speaking those of. Are still going on, but, you know, Congress and legislature, I think they're about done or they are yeah. done. And, you know, so but the maps are still going. So, you know, those other those other bodies are really important as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of the state school board, I got to see Patsy Kojohns today, you guys. It was magical. Aww. And What was she, she up to? She's, uh, my daughter's school celebrated 100 years today. So um, also, yeah. my daughter is almost as tall as um, Patsy Kojohns. So that was pretty adorable. <laughs> well, she is a feisty little thing on the board of mm-hmm. education. Love um, she just she loves kids. Mm-hmm. Loves kids. She's a fighter mm-hmm. for the children, which is what you want on your board of ed. Mm-hmm. Well, we have a fabulous guest. She has been. I mean, I've been watching her. Her name's Dominique, and I've been watching her since Jazari. I mean, really, I kind of wish Jazari was on the show tonight too. Um, I kind of can't think of her without thinking of him, but she was on all of his live streams, speaking and talking, um, with all of Black Lives Matter's protests last summer. And so I just really excited to bring her on and get a more one-on-one conversation, three-on-one and, you know, just hear what she has to say. Let's, so let's bring her in. All right. 
This evening, we have Dominique Lusang. She's a local community activist who focuses primarily on Black liberation, but is also not shy to advocating for other oppressed groups of people. In more recent news, she has been organizing protests on UNL's campus against Phi Gamma Delta House in regards to current sexual assault allegations. She aims to help the people by any means necessary, including if it makes other people feel uncomfortable with the complex topics at hand, because silence is violence. Dominique, we're very excited to have you tonight. Of course, and thank you for inviting me. It's, it's been a pleasure being able to speak with probably one of the greatest social media platforms ever seeing right in Nebraska. So I'm excited to be here. Thank you. I mean, that cannot be true because yeah. I am Zari Kowal's biggest fangirl. So like, <laughs> I mean, I just don't even think I can accept that accolade. <laughs> <laughs> I was yeah. actually at um actually all three of us today were at uh Streets Alive, which is a it's like a public health, get outside and be healthy, look at these cool neighborhoods in uh the city kind of thing in Lincoln. And there is actually a picture of Jazari on one of the signs telling people to get their <laughs> COVID vaccine. And I was like, ah I love that. So well, anyway, if you're listening tonight, Jazari, I think you're amazing. <laughs> I would say I wouldn't be anywhere without Jazari, you know, ever since the first day that I was out there till 8 a.m. Uh, during the day of Easy Go, you know, Jazari was there in every step of the way. I mean, he's he's been every single place and has not missed a single moment. So I will say he is a, he's a big proponent of a lot of this movement and, and every movement. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. So before we talk about like all the amazing things that you have been up to and really, you know, the last maybe 18 months, especially, but what were you doing before the last 18 months? Are you from Nebraska? Where'd you grow up? So what are some of your hobbies, interests, you know, that kind of thing. Tell us who you are. All right. So I'll break it down a little bit. Um, I'm from Washington, DC. I was born and raised in the DMV, which stands for DC, Maryland, Virginia area. It's a megalopolis. So um, I grew up with a lot of diversity, a lot of culture, a lot of just, you know, people were just able to be themselves. There wasn't that direct oppression that we face in Nebraska. But um, one thing that my family always struggled with was a systematic downfall of finances and uh, the inability to just keep a stable financial life. So that led to us at the age of, I was 16 at the time. Um, we went from Maryland to Fred, Nebraska, which is a small town of a thousand people. It's a mile by a mile. So imagine going from, you know, basically living in the, the, the big city, the capital of the United States to a tiny town in the middle of the United States where, <laughs> you know, I'm pretty much was the only black girl. Um, and I always get a lot of heat for this, but I was the first black girl to graduate. And I say that I mean the first African American person to graduate, like African American girl to graduate. So um, it was very big difference. Um, and so I didn't understand a lot of um, things that people were like basically doing, like oppressing me, saying racist things. I didn't catch a lot of that because it was new to me. You know, I grew up in a predominantly um, colored society. So there were black people. You didn't, there were Mexicans, there were Guatemalans and El Salvadorians, you know, people weren't defined by their race. They were defined by their ethnicity and their nationality because being American wasn't that, you know, it wasn't as common. And so I grew up 
My parents are Jamaican. They uh, immigrated to the U.S. when they were younger. And my mom and my grandmother and my great-grandmother, they're restaurateurs. They own restaurants. They cook food. They're chefs. So I've always had that passion that when I grow up, I'm going to be a chef. And for the majority of my life, I was like, I'm going to go to culinary school. I was getting scholarships for it. I was going to do that. And when I moved to Nebraska, something I will say that changed for me living in such a small rural community is the love of agriculture that I have because I was always so gung-ho about the food, you know, I can cook the food all day, but the change for me is I don't really want to cook the food. I want to grow the food. I want to make the produce. I want to be able to provide for people, you know, basic food necessities because uh, that's something that was an issue living in friends. Like there's no grocery stores. How are people eating? We grow all this corn in this community, but like, why is there no community garden that people can eat from? And in addition, just like seeing the difference between city poverty and rural poverty was like a very big culture shock to me. Cause I'm like, there should be no poverty in rural United States. You know, there's more than enough resources and land and space and availability. Why are we still having to deal with, you know, this kind of oppression and I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to college. I'm going to learn everything I can about plants, animals, agricultural sciences, plant science, um, biotechnology, all of it. And a concept that we have in on the Eastern coast, and I, I see that they do have it here in Nebraska, is a co-op. So different farmers um, and different producers will grow their, you know, their specialty vegetables, or they'll have their cattle and they'll cut their meat and they put it all in a grocery store. And that grocery store is self-sustaining from all of the people putting in and everyone who puts in gets money out, but also like any of that extra profit will just go toward the community to donate to like charities and houseless shelters and things. So it's a really easy concept to understand. It's pretty much like a farmer's market as a grocery store. And that's, that's a business thing. So I also do agribusiness as well, because you have to understand the economics behind your food and everything in between. So um, prior to the 18 months, I was going to UNL for agricultural sciences and food science and technology. And um, funny story. So around June of 2018-ish, I decided that you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to move somewhere. I want to move somewhere where I can understand farming, not on a large scale, because with friend, a lot of farmers are mass producers. They produce these fields upon fields of corn. I did tassels. So you walk those long fields and I'm like, this would be a lot more beneficial if like you sectioned it off and this part is corn and this part is tomatoes and this part is, you know, carrots. And then let this 40 acres be to sustaining the communities around it. And, you know, that's something that's kind of hard to get through to farmers. But uh, I had a friend who moved to Montana in 2019. And he was like, you know what, you can come move up here. I, I do sugar beet farming um, with my boss. And we also like, we have this extra farmland that we don't use for anything. And, you know, I can't run it by myself. So would you like to come and intern and basically learn hands-on how to be a farmer, how to be a rancher. So I packed up all my bags 
And in 2019, I moved to Ballantyne, Montana, which is even smaller than friend. It's, <laughs> I mean, when I say I lived in the backwoods of the country, like my backyard was the abyss of, of nothing. And we decided we wanted to start a little tiny farm, a little tiny garden. So while he did all of his work, his 16 hours of work a day for the uh, rancher he was working for, we decided to get a cow. We got a bull. I'm sorry. Well, technically we got, yeah, we got a bull. We got a bull. I named him Randy and we cared for him until we left. So we raised him. We fed him. There's an old barn that was there. We had to clean out and patch it up and do all the work to it. And then we started doing carrots and squash and we just planted as much as we could to feed ourselves and our landlord. Cause they lived, you know, just a mile down the property. Um, and it was really well because not only did we do that, but a lot of those farmers in that area in Montana will kind of do the same thing. They'll grow different fruits and veggies and they'll trade it with each other. So, you know, one will have all these onions and potatoes and they'll give them to the neighbor next door. The neighbor next door did a bunch of different fruits. So I was like, this is this is all we need. You know, we sustain each other as a community. And just due to kind of what I was doing at that time as well. Um, in the winter, you know, you can't do really any crops in Montana in the winter because uh, winter starts in September. So it starts snowing right around October and you can get an easy foot or two foot of snow. So, um, you know, just primarily Randy, but I ended up getting a job uh, at a medical marijuana dispensary in Montana and kind of seeing what that industry was like, how that worked. And how a super conservative state like Montana has such a beneficial medical program that even like these super rural conservative farmers are like, this is helping my back pain from working 16 hours a day on the farm, sitting in a tractor, you know, like just a little bit of a THC cell just helps my back so much. And I'm like, you know, we have to look at, you know, how we can help our farmers do better because when you put them on opiates and things, they're not able to work those fields. And then we have an issue with our agricultural economics because then we have a scarcity problem because people are unable to work due to pain. Um, so it's all intersectional, you know, the medical, the food, just everything adds up. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm just going to go back home now. I got, I got all this knowledge. I've got all this experience. I want to go back to school, finish my degree and go from there, you know, actually save up money to buy a farm, to sustain wherever I move. And so I moved back March of 2020 when COVID started. And then from COVID starting, well, not COVID starting, I would say when lockdown started in Lincoln, then I ended up, you know, working at the, uh, the Department of Unemployment because uh, it was the only job I could get. COVID, you know, you can't get a job. So working for the unemployment department straight out of coming from a rural society where I, I didn't, you know, talk to anyone um, was very heartbreaking because I was reading everyone's letters of why they were unemployed. I was people were sending in all these documents and it was my job to read through those documents and sort them to file for their claims. And I went through probably 500 pieces of mail a day, seven days a week. And let me tell you, like, it broke my heart. 
it broke my heart to read how people were struggling during COVID, how many business owners, and I'm going to say small business owners because it was like hairstylists and daycare owners and people who were like, you know, getting started, they were unable to work. They were unable to provide for their family. And we were so backed up at the department of unemployment, like the department that like people weren't getting money and people were still struggling. And that took a very large toll on me. And so in May, you know, right around George Floyd, I was still working there and I being out there and advocating and like being in that space and listening to the people like directly, like it made me just so angry. I think that's just the word to use because a lot of that pain and suffering that people, I'm going to say people in general have to go through. It's, it's, I don't even know what to say. It's just, it's, it's crazy. That's just it. Um, so, uh, yeah, just going out there and I quit my job literally after the protest started. Cause I said, I can after the, all the protests started happening after George Floyd was murdered by police officers. Right. Okay. Yep, I ended up quitting my job because the liberation of the people was a lot more important. So um, to kind of break it down, the first day was easy go. I was out there as a medic um, the first day of the easy go. Uh, the second day, I then was out there as a medic again. The third day was, what day was that? Was that the May 31st protest? If I got my days right. Were you in Lincoln? Did you start out in Lincoln or did you start out in Omaha? I started out in Lincoln. So at the time when I moved back to Nebraska, I lived on 10th and O Street. So I lived oh, right, so it was like <laughs> right outside your house. Right. So I would just like out my window. So I would go to work. I'd come in, change, put my gear on, grab my backpack and I'd walk out and, you know, whatever. And uh, even though my house was super close and it was super safe, you know, I never used that opportunity as a crutch in this movement. I faced whatever consequences I got. And that's something that a lot of people I think were inspired by is like, I'm not going to run away from the situation. So when it came to like my, even though my house was so close and I had so many friends around, like when it came time for like people to be tear gas, I didn't just run home and say, you know what, this is the end. I said, no, there are people here that are hurting. And how is it beneficial to my future generations if these are the people around me now that, you know, their future kids are also going to be, I, I don't know. I always think about kids whenever I do anything with protesting because um, a lot of people, especially black people, Protesting is not this foreign new phenomenon fad like a lot of privileged people think. Like my mother was out there in the streets when she was younger and my grandmother, my great-grandmother, and it's generational for us. That's why we say it's a lot of generational trauma to have to keep going through this is because like it's an instinct, you know? We know what to do to go out there and we haven't even, there's no rule book, there's no handbook on it. And um, just being united in that front of like, at this time, whatever we do, it is together as a unit. If one person loots and robs the gas station, it 
it reflects on all of us. And I remember that one day I was like telling people in that you stop, like put it down. Like I was taking things from people's hands. I was like, you're not going to steal from this you stop when he's allowing us to use it as like a medic, like pretty much a, a, a pop-up triage. You know, people were getting shot. We were able to clean wounds within the you stop. We were able to clear out people's tear gas in their eyes. And and people were like, no, we're going to steal it. And I was like, no, you're going to ruin it for everyone. You're going to break the safety. And that was something that really did piss me off like so much is like, at the end of the day, all of my intentions that I do is good. I was raised right. I was raised to be loving, be caring with my parents being Jamaican. One love is a true statement. You know, one love means everyone. It doesn't matter who you are. Like you're a human being. I'm a human being. So we're going to, we're going to share this moment and share this space. And when it came time, like, I was like, I hate the violence. I hate this oppression. I hate the suffering. Like someone needs to take it and make it positive, make it healing, make it unifying. And then one day I stood up and someone was like, anyone want to speak? And I was like, I have some things to say. And I think from there, because what I said was so different from everyone else that had spoken, people were like, who is this girl? Where did she come from? And I'm like, sucks to be you guys. I've been in this community for years. You know, I know so many people from Western Nebraska to Omaha, from Norfolk, all the way down to uh, Red Cloud. And it's like, this is Nebraska. And this is unfortunate that this is the predicament we're in as people of color and black people. And we're stuck here. And it's okay. We should be allowed to be here because at the end of the day, this is not anyone's land except indigenous land to say something about. So what we need to do is we need to come together and work together to make the efficient change. Because if you want to say that these are issues, then what are you doing about it? Because, you know, like my mom always said, don't talk about it, be about it. And actions speak louder than words. And I'm not going to tell you what's up. I'm going to show you what's up. So that's a mentality that I have in life. You know, don't don't do all of this. Don't do all the chat chat. Put your hands to it. You know. Mm -hmm. So what does it look like to go from. This has been going on, you know, like you were doing BLM last year and then this year there was it was all about the sexual assault this fall you know, with the big issue. And then of course it's all intersexual, inter, not intersexual, intersectional. And it's, I'm just struggling to find the right words, but like, how do we move things from we're mad, we're screaming in the streets to we have effectively changed something. Like, what are your thoughts about that? Yes. So, um, I'm going to jump around a little bit. So for me, I was, I was raised LDS, Latter-day Saint, Mormon, whatever you want to call it, not the polygamy kind. Okay. Um, and something my Bishop told me when I was younger, cause I got into an argument with one of my, uh, seminary teachers. He's like, don't look at the moat in someone else's eye when you have a beam and you can't judge someone for what they do when you yourself make have actions and make decisions that could either be helpful or unhelpful. I don't use the words good or bad. I use the words helpful and unhelpful because sometimes what's good for one person may be bad for another. And when it comes to protests and movements and things, 
everyone always comes up to me because, you know, I'm that person. I'm the loudest one in the room. You know, I've always been that way. But they're like, we need to get masses of people out here. And that's the only way to make change. And we need to get media to look at this issue. And that's the only effective way to make change. And I tell you, listen, we've been doing that for generations upon generations. MLK did that and he was killed. Malcolm X did that and he was killed. Every single activist in history who went that route ends up dead. And that's the problem is because you have people who get out there and they say things and they say they want to make change, but they're only saying it, right? And you can't Mm -hmm. make effective change just by standing out in the streets and chanting. And you can't make effective change just by talking to media and bashing someone, right? Because the first thing you need to do is look at you yourself, the person who was being an activist or organizer or advocate. And you say to yourself, how does this affect me? How does this relate to me first? Because when you make it interpersonal, then you can understand where that anger comes from. And a lot of something that a lot of activists currently in the community and like I want everyone to be very cognizant of this. A lot of us activists, especially most of us being under the age of like 25, we're still going through like learning our childhood traumas and like understanding life and being an adult. And because we're advocates for the people, we have to come to terms with our life a lot quicker so that we can make ourselves more stable for the people. Because if we cannot keep our heads on our bodies tight and screwed, how can we lead people and put them in that situation for them to be left on their own? So A, you know, relating it to yourself. So with the BLM protest, as a black person, I have seen oppression. I have dealt with racism. I've dealt with indirect and direct racism. I have had to deal with systematic racism and all those kinds of different perpetuated like oppression, right? And then when it comes to the UNL thing, I have to look at it as a woman, right? I have to look at it as a student. I have to look at the situation as a woman who was in a sorority at some point. You know, I have to look at it as someone who's lived on campus and who works on campus and having so many friends and affiliates who I I work with who care for me. Right. That's number one. So look, relating it to yourself is number one. And this is where you you have that difference between narcissistic and just um, empathy, because now I've related it to myself and I understand. Then I can say, okay, number two. Who does, the, who does this directly affect beside me? So for instance, with the BLM protest, it was George Floyd primarily people were focused on, but now we had to look at James Scurlock here in Lincoln and in, in Omaha, Nebraska. You know, he died at a protest at the hands of a white supremacist. We have to look at, um, you know, Willie Brown up in Omaha and that's years, you know, that was generations ago, but that's still something we have to look at. This affects him. And then we have to look at, okay, well, it's not just black people who are affected by this. It is also our indigenous peoples. And how does this affect them? And how are, how, what is their part that they play in this, you know, role in the society and how are they oppressed? And then you have to look at, okay, well, what about people who are from South Southern America? How are they oppressed? And like, just kind of doing that research to kind of close that gap between like, oh, we're different somehow. No, we're not different. We all face the same oppressor 
It's just that our oppressor has divided us based on race or based on class or based on gender or based on a lot of times political party. And that's a lot of what the issue was in, in the movement um, when it came down to it is like people weren't reflecting on how it affects other people. Because when you start to put politics into human rights, then you're treading on a very fine line because politics are made to divide and conquer. So even though me and this person can see eye to eye on this situation, just bringing up like, you know, who's a Democrat and who's a Republican and which one's better, that conversation will always kill a movement because then it's like, oh, you're liberal scum and you're, that is besides the point. Because when you look at the history of America, regardless if you're a Republican or Democrat, the political party oppresses indigenous, black, and other people of color. And, um, and in general, like, I'm going to be very, very, very transparent here. You know, at this point in the movement, it's like either you have colonizer brain or you don't. And that's something we just kind of joke about, but it's a real thing because colonizer brain means that you're still in favor and you still benefit and you still accept that privilege that keeps you from being oppressed while also aiding in the oppression of other people. That's colonizing. And there are a lot of members and allies in this movement who have kind of decolonized themselves. And they're like, I'm not gonna do that. And I'm not gonna engage in those things because they oppress people. And so when it translates over to the whole like UNL sexual assault thing, Mm, let's let's just get into this real quick okay so one thing about the movements over the last 18 months is that the indigenous people have always been supportive of everyone else's movement and in return we supported their movement the black liberation movement um, supported the indigenous movement and that was something that changed a lot of perspective for a lot of us especially since um, a lot of us younger ones got to, you know, be engaged in those conversations of like MMIW, you know, missing and murdered indigenous women. And when they talk about it, of like this country was built on the pillage and rape of our people. It's like, oh shit, wait a minute. Sexual assault and rape were the foundations of the start of this country. And then you have black people being oppressed and being enslaved and then raped and beaten on on farms. And then it's like, okay, so not only did you do this to one group of people, you've done it to two groups of people. And then you have to add on kind of everything else, all those different groups that kind of got tucked under there. And and then now we're here. We're in modern day society where sexual assault it's so common, it's normalized, people just turn an eye to it. And that's not okay. And it's the same thing with racism and every other kind of oppression is people turn an eye to it because they're like, oh, we've moved past that, that doesn't exist. No, it still exists. Sexual assault on campus still exists. And it takes someone being thrown on a lawn for people to be upset. But what about the other countless women who have reported on campus and men on campus in the last few years? What about the fact that a week after Fiji, Sigma Chi also had pretty much the same incident? And 
how is it that you want effective change, but it's still happening? And how is it you want effective change, but you can't realize the root and the history of why this is normalized? And that's why the, the two movements can't intersect first until they both come to terms with the fact that regardless, like it's intersectional. You can't have a movement about sexual assault and not include people's identity right? Because you also have to include the queer community and you have to include men and you need to include everyone because everyone faces sexual assault. And there's a lot of drama with this movement because now we kind of see that there's a divide between Greeks and non-Greeks. And it's like, everyone who's non-Greek, we just want the Greek system to be held accountable at this point. And if you can't hold yourself accountable, then that's what the cops do. That's what the police does. They don't hold themselves accountable and they sugarcoat shit and they empathize with things and they do all of this. And we're at the point where it's like. And I'll tell you what, I was at the university 20 years ago in Lincoln. And I mean, everybody knows that frat houses are where rapes happen. Like this is not new and controversial information. Right. Like nothing that was happened this year is new and not and controversial. Everybody knows that they are so high risk and you should, you know, do everything to make sure that high school girls don't get to those parties. And like, it, it's not new information. It's, it's like, why are we still having this problem from when I was 20 and I'm 40 now? Right. Like, UNL, this isn't a new problem. P.S. It's not even just UNL. It's every university everywhere. And it's so big. And they're just like, well, we're so shocked. What can we possibly do? And like, that's the thing. And the same thing that happened with the BLM protests of like people sharing their stories of like how they face oppression. The same thing happened with this movement. You know, when we started out this movement, people were angry. They were furious. There was a lot of anger and rage. But this is what it means to be a, be a good organizer and be cognizant. In the first few days, there were actions and words and information that was spread that could potentially harm the victim and her case. So we said we should not be focusing on that because we don't want the things that we do out in the streets to affect someone's justice. So we switched it from attacking Fiji and, you know, being pissed and chanting rude things to we're going to provide unity, solidarity and comfort to not just her, but other survivors. We're going to focus on other people sharing their story to break stigmas because there were a lot of men that were coming up and like, can I tell my story? I really want to break the stigma. And that kind of aided that transition of like, we're going to bash men. We're going to hate men. No, men also suffer from sexual assault. And that was really amazing how that, that like tide turn. And then we went from fuck Fiji to we're going to shut down Fiji, but we're also going to hold the university accountable. And that's kind of where the shift came because those first few days were like, it's all about Fiji. But then people were like, but now there's Sigma Chi and SAE, which stands for sexual assault expected because that's what everyone calls it. And you have all these other fraternities and it's like, so it's not just Fiji. It's, it's a lot of the Greek system, but then you have to look at what the university has done to change that. And then you're like, Oh wait, they haven't done anything. (laughs) And then you're like, okay, what about campus resources? 
oh, they're telling people not to file. They're telling people that they won't win. They're telling people they can't help them. Okay, so what do we need to do now? Because within a matter of a few days, three, four days, it went from Fiji to like, it, it jumped through all these loops, all these loops. And it was like, this is, this is what we need. We need this intersectionality. We need people to feel comfortable coming together. And that's why it was really nice that we were able to share stories with each other. It's because it's like, you're brave. I'm brave. We're all brave. And like, this is so powerful. And like, people were inspired to heal themselves. People were inspired to reach out to others. A lot of people were going and just coming, like getting that closure, you know, and just becoming more comfortable with who they are and understanding the trauma behind it. And I think that also really propelled a lot of like campus groups and advocates to be like, okay, so this isn't about just Fiji. Like our student body is hurting. Our student body wants change. Like they're out here telling us their stories. We need to reach out and show them the love and support. So now we have places like Dear UNL who are like, really trying their best to provide as many resources as they can. We have, you know, a lot of the right, things. Because they started, what, a year or two ago. Right. Here at UNL. And so that's, like, it's not new. <laughs> like, I think that maybe came out of the Me Too movement. Maybe I can't remember exactly. But, um, yeah, what do you think about, so, you know, there's this idea of, like, one love, right? Like, we all come together. And we all, and like, I'm asking you all these because these are just things I'm always thinking about too. You know, I'm the executive director at Nebraskans Against Gun Violence. And there's just all these different places that guns intersect in everything. And, you know, so I'm just, I'm just fascinated by kind of, kind of what you're thinking. These are just questions I'm thinking for myself too. But what about, you know, there's a lot of ways that people want to activate. And so there is this idea that, you know, we're one movement and we all want to work together, but then there's this other reality, which is there's maybe a hundred different ideas and like, can they all run in parallel successfully? Do we need kind of an overarching, like, well, here's, this is who's in charge or can it be totally decentralized? You know, like, how do you see those two things the need for decentralization, but also the need for someone to talk to people in power and the press and kind of be the face of something. Right. Um, what do you think about that? So I actually was just having this conversation uh, at six o'clock today with another friend. And <laughs> so, by the way, I am all for decentralization, right? Um, and even with myself, like this is overarching, like idea people have me of like, oh yeah, she has a lot of power and she's a celebrity. No, no. I want people to understand that, A, I am a normal dad damn human being. I have neurodivergent issues. I have my own issues. I eat, like, I'm just a normal person who just happens to be very loud, very well-spoken, right? Um, there shouldn't, like, how do I say it? Like, there shouldn't be one mass movement, right? And in the end, it is one mass movement. It's the people that's it. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to all these different organizations and all these different groups and all these different movements and all these different little nuanced things, we just need leaders in all of those places. And I'm saying leader 
and not and not president or anything because a leader is in the people, right? Like a chairman of an organization is not in charge. They just know everything that's going on. So you can always ask them. It's the same thing. We don't need bosses and executive rulers. We need more chairmen and more leaders. Everyone is a leader in their own way. I always like to, I always like to bring this up. Dr. Colette Yellow Robe taught me so much, um, but we're all leaders. You're a leader at home, at work, in your day-to-day life, in church, wherever you go, right? But how can you translate that into a place where leadership is needed the most? Because that is why we are upset. That is why the people are upset. That's why there's movements. That's why there's anger. Is because the leadership that we elected and the leadership that is currently in place, they're not leaders. They're executive accountants. They're executive presidents. They're senators. They're people that have that position and that power because they have the privilege to do so. A leader doesn't have to have privilege to be a leader. A leader is someone who will speak up and do what needs to be done for the betterment of the people. And that's, that's the crazy thing to think is like, when you tell people that they're a leader, you just don't know it. They're like, well, what do you mean? And some people take it to head. Some people are like, I'm a leader. Well, I'm going to run everything. No, a leader doesn't run anything. A leader delegates at best, at best will delegate. And you need someone to delegate. And a lot of people don't like that because even when you decentralize and you have no leadership, like someone's still going to need to delegate. Someone's still going to need to make sure that everything is operational. Everything is in place, that every check is checked. And that's what I do. I'm not out here saying, oh, I run this. No, I'm making sure that everything that needs to be in place is put there. Usually people will call that the, uh, like, like I always think of like a a maintenance man, right? The maintenance man makes sure that everything is working. That's a leader. Uh, A maintenance man is a leader, not, not the lady in the leasing office. The lady in the leasing office just points fingers and that's great. She can delegate. You know, I think there is something to be said. I think sometimes Women especially are trained to think that the idea that someone might have um, power and position or authority in some sort of leadership role, like that is somehow a bad thing. Um, you know, men generally, males generally will find this to be problematic. Uh, but as women, we just want to make sure like, no, 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 we're collaborative. We're inclusive. We're letting everybody have a seat at the table. And, you know, I, I, but I think there is just something to be said about Okay, well, if you want a website, somebody has to put it up. Like, if the press wants to speak to somebody, there's somebody who has to kind of have the information that they can go talk to the press. And they are kind of speaking on behalf of the group. Someone has to do it. Um, Because the person who just showed up today, who hasn't been there the last three months, they're maybe not the best spokesperson for the movement. And I don't think it's problematic to recognize that. You know? It's confront. It's at best, it's confrontational, and we have to like we have to confront that. You know, people are like, "Oh, I'm just talking." Like people like to say, "Like, oh, I'm cloud chasing, and I'm just trying to talk to the media." Let me tell you something. I ignore the media. I wish people realized when they call my phone. I'm like, click. You know, I have to run around and build those websites. 
by myself if there's no one to help. I have to, you know, plan out the schedule if I don't have help. I have to be the one to go to the store and buy the supplies to make sure that they're there. I have to be the one to package those packages we make if no one's able to help. And that's a lot of what the thing is like everyone says, oh yeah, mm-hmm. we want to help. We want to be a part of it. And then, you know, you want to help and be a part of it right now. But in a month, are you still wanting to be a part of it? And that's where we right. have to differentiate the difference between someone who is in this too for the long haul and wants to be revolutionary and someone who's performative and like, oh, I want to help because it, it makes me feel better. No, a leader well, doesn't. And those people are important. You know, like if you're going to have a rally, for example, you need people who want to come and just hold a sign and then go home. And, you know, that was their deal. And that's fine. Like there's space for everybody to participate, I think. But I just, yeah, like all the things you're describing are boring and they're not evocative and they're, but like, they're essential. They're essential. They're essential. Like if you want to make brochures, you know, someone, you has call, to like, do it. Out brochures, someone has to call the printer. Someone has to raise the money. Someone has to go pick them up. Someone, someone has, has to, to design it. To them. Yeah, someone has to fold them because you probably couldn't afford the upcharge to have them like pre-folded. You know, (laughs) (laughs) this stuff is really boring and it's not sexy. And these are the things that like these people who do these things, they end up being kind of the core group and they end up being more like the voice and the leadership team of whatever it is that movement is. And I don't think that's a dirty thing. I think that's just, course that's how it would work out that's how responsibility works you work your way up yeah and a lot of it is also research and that's I think research is one of those things that differentiate between reactionary movements and revolutionary movements because reactionary movements if something happens and someone instantly responds and it's just like boom chaos but revolutionary is there's something that happens Someone does the research and then they respond. And that's effective because instead of just going out there and being like, you did this bad thing. It's like, hold on, let's actually look at how you did this bad thing. Let's look at all the laws. Let's look at all the little things that went into what happened. And then let's go ahead and put that information out because then that brings awareness, right? With the whole George Floyd case, a lot of people, and I hated that this happened, but this was such a divide. A lot of people who I know that are conservative They were just like, yeah, no, this guy showed up with a fake bill. He was a prior meth head and he went to jail and blah, blah, blah. Like all this stuff that they just read on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And it's like, did you do any research? Did you actually go on Google.com, type in anything and get like credible resource, research, all that? The answer is no. And also, even if all of those allegations are true, so what? You don't deserve to die for a counterfeit bill. No, because property damage is not real violence. Like, <laughs> you know, you don't deserve to be killed by police for being a drug user. You don't deserve to be killed by police for anything he might have been accused of in that moment. Right. You just because don't when I, I like to always tell the story, when I lived in a small town, the cops didn't do anything to meth heads. They let them drive off. You know, when people committed crimes, oh, well, that's such and such a son, you know, I'm just, you know, talk to him real good. 
And it's like those kids are drug users. Those adults are drug users. They do bad things in these tiny towns and they don't die. But the difference is George Floyd was a black man in the middle of a city where they have prior connotations of people. They have they think of black people as criminals and thugs and those kinds of things and those perpetuated terrible terms that they use. And it's like they don't value our lives. And that's why the whole statement of Black Lives Matter isn't like it's not. I mean, it is like an official organization from what I know. But like Black Lives Matter is a statement like y'all don't think our lives matter. That's why we have to say it, because if you cared about black lives, then you would say George Floyd shouldn't have died. That's just exactly. the point blank of it. And a lot of people in this movement, you know, they agree with that and they understand that. And that's why we have a lot of solidarity. And while I appreciate that, you know, we have to also look into, okay, how else are we oppressing black people so that we can stop that so we can continue to value their lives? Because if we look at it, okay, you know, you want to talk about drug addiction. Well, look at the current case with the Nebraska State Patrol and how they were putting drugs into the community. You know, where is those drugs going? They're going into the into the lower income communities. That's literally the way it's been done in history's time. That's why the war on drugs was a war on black people, because you put them in our communities, you give them to our people, you know, and then you want to say, well, all black people are drug users. Well, no. If you don't provide them with the resources they need to survive, but yet they're like, yeah, here's this, you know, you're, you're ruining the people intentionally. And it's like, you know, that we have to be cognizant of how and why we do things because internalized racism is a real thing. And a lot of people don't realize that they have internalized racism. So then they say, okay, well, black lives matter but then they turn around and they fetishize black people. And that's, that leads into the sexual assault thing of like black women get sexually assaulted so much in Nebraska, but there's nothing for us, like no help for us. There's no resources. There's no therapy, none of that, because we aren't seen as people in the state. We only make up basically 5% of the population here. And with 50%, of that 5% in jail, we have no representation. We don't have representation within school boards. We don't have representation within city councils to that capacity. You know, it's not even, you know, we have more than just black people. Indigenous people should be on those boards. Indigenous people also don't have representation within all of these places. And that's why it's been a lot easier for the black liberation movement and the indigenous rights movement to kind of come together because we're facing the same oppressor. And that's and that's something that people kind of have been catching on to is like, at this point, it's colonizers versus uncolonized people. So how would you know, how would you know if things are better? Like, how would you know if the work that you're working on has mattered so like you know maybe not right now but maybe let's say next year if you look back on the last two years like what kind of things will you be looking at to see if the work you're doing is making an impact 
if it's worth continuing to work on it, if it's worth changing it up in a significant way, like, I mean, it's a, it's a big question and you can reinterpret it if you want to. Uh, but I think, you know, after living through the Trump years that we all lived through and seeing the environment is, you know, the earth is dying and we have basically no real police reform over the last year, anywhere in the country, just about, you know, with a little few pockets here and there, we were awash in guns. Like, we have a very, very serious, like, white supremacist insurgency movement that threatens to disrupt the entire governance structure of our country. Like, how do you know if the things you're working on are the right thing? Like, what, what kind of measures do you use um, so for me, the measure goes back to that first thing of how does this affect me? And then who else does this affect? And, um, it starts with like, one, you can't really see those things, right? Because when it comes to police reform, like, you know, we advocate for so much change, but they're not going to tell us like, yeah, we did this change. You can only see it, right? Can't talk about it. Gotta be about it. Um, actions speak louder than words. So the only way that like you can notice that change has happened is less and less people are having an issue. Right. Because currently with the way everything is going, we're seeing that there's actually more racism, like direct racism happening in Lincoln. Right. You've got students having their car keyed with, with racial slurs. We have students you know, pious, we can talk about pious all day and their white supremacy, (laughs) just all of that. And it's like, yeah, change is happening. They're, they're finally coming out of the the woodworks like cockroaches to be racist. They're just running to be racist at this point. They're enjoying it. They're enjoying that view and they're exposing themselves and see. So would you say that's a sign that of success because they are, they feel threatened that cracks in the oppressive ceiling are happening. And they're like, Oh no, 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 no. We have to patch them all up. Like, would you say maybe that's a sign of success or, or no? Yep. I say it's a sign of success because the first thing you have to do is you have to address the problem. Right. And here's the thing about Nebraska and, you know, people are going to be mad at me, but I'm not from here. So this is from an outsider's perspective, but people sugarcoat racism here. They pretend like it doesn't exist and it's not real. And when I say that, I mean, white people here pretend like racism doesn't exist. They're like, oh, slavery ended X, Y, Z years ago. You know, I can say the N word because I'm, you know, no, no. What that is, is that is your parents and whoever in the education system telling you it's ended. So Mm -hmm. while they're saying all of these racial slurs in private, now because of the protest and because we have addressed like y'all have been doing this and this needs to end they're like wait a minute who are you talking to you know because they're feeling threatened and they feel you know they feel small and so they're gonna you know it's kind of like you know the whole thing of you know little big big truck it's like oh oh we called you racist so you're gonna bring out your giant confederate flag to show us that you're mm-hmm. racist right um we have a lot more people i know this is super weird but because i lived on o street i could see you know 
prior to the protest, there were no big trucks driving up and down O Street all night. Um, but then after that, you know, we had, I mean, it was crazy seeing all of the don't tread on me flags and Confederate flags and all these flags all down O Street every single night. And I'm like, so we said y'all are racist. Y'all told her she weren't racist. And then you come out and do this. So obviously, like now we've addressed the problem. Now that people are openly exposing themselves, it's like, oh, so now we're just picking you out. You're a racist. So let's go ahead and do something about it. Let's go ahead and, you know, on Facebook, it's so easy. Let's go ahead and blow up your comment section so you get upset. Let's have all these activists just ram your comment section. Oh, you're saying extreme racial slurs now. So we're going to call your job. Okay. And, you know, people are losing their jobs over this. People are losing their funding over this. People are being evicted over being racist. And it's like, that's how change is being made. Now, because they have nothing left due to their racism, they are now having to reflect and realize what they've done wrong. Because, and I know a lot of people get upset with me because they're like, Dom, you can't be nice to people. But I'm like, me calling someone a racist is fucking with their mental health because they themselves have never seen themselves as racist. So for someone to call them racist, they're like, but what, but why, but and then they're like freaking out because they're like, I have never been called this. I have not this person. And then they have to sit there and reflect. And then they're running around telling people, I got called a racist by this person. And they're telling their friends, I got called a racist. And they're like, their friends are like, what happened? And then, you know, they start having that conversation. Well, I was on the internet and I said this and I did this. And their friends like, no, that was racist. That's them having to reflect on their own time and in their own space and with their own people. So would you say that maybe kind of like the foundation of your methodology might be getting people talking? Yes. Just getting people talking through just discourse or maybe even just a controversial discourse, like whatever it takes, wherever they're at, whatever it takes to push them into dialogue. Like that's where we have to like push you just enough to get you involved. Right. And, um, you know, living in front of Nebraska, because I was the only black person and people don't see themselves as racist. It was super easy for me to be like, yeah, that, that behavior is racist. And they're like, what? And they're like, what do you mean? And I'm like, so this is why, how it affects people in a negative way. And they're like, oh my God, I didn't know that. And it's like, well, now, you know, you know, it's, a lot of people and and I'm sorry, any black activist will tell you this. It's not our job to educate white people on how they're oppressing us. But something that I've been trying to advocate for and a lot of people have been able to pick up is like you don't have to educate them on why they're racist. You just need to ask them the right questions for them to do their own research and to educate themselves on why they're racist. Right. So it's like when people say things like, oh, do all black people like fried chicken, watermelon and grape soda? That's a question people used to ask me when I moved to Nebraska, like (laughs) regular basis. And I'm like, where'd you, where'd you hear that from? And they're like, well, that's a stereotype I've kind of learned. And I'm like, from where, like, do you know any other black people? And they're like, no. And I'm like, so why would you feel comfortable asking me that question? And they're like, 
I'm curious. And I'm like, it's okay to be curious. That's not a problem. I'm a curious person. I ask all the questions, but you have to realize that your curiosity is rooted in racism. And they're like, oh, I'm, I didn't mean to be offensive. I didn't mean to, you know, it's like, I know you didn't mean to, but you did. And even though you didn't have the intention to be offensive and oppressive, you did. And the only way that you're ever going to break that cycle is if someone corrects you. And that's a lot of how everything can be fixed and with people. And I'm not going to say like, you know, the overall system can be fixed that way, but just that conversation, having that conversation with people can change someone's perspective. You can't do that with everyone. Some people are very set in their ways and the older they are, the usually the more set in their ways they are. I've learned, but you know, what especially with younger kids who were like 15, 16, who are like, yeah, I'm pro Trump and I'm poor pro, you know, abortion. I'm like, why? Who tells you to do that? It's not your religion because as someone who was raised Mormon with the Bible and with modesty and everything in between, you know, my thing is I'm always going to make conversation uncomfortable because if I'm uncomfortable, then you should be too. And that's the same with everyone. Everyone should have that mindset of, if you're not comfortable, make the other person uncomfortable because them being them oppressing you in that, in that way, because uncomfortability is oppression, right? Them doing that is allowing them to continue what they're doing and they could be doing it to other people. And that could be the difference between someone, you know, having a violent outburst or someone having to go home and, you know, cry about it and like really just be depressed about something that someone said to them or having that conversation and like just being clear and being just, just human. It's human to have conversations. It's like at the macro level, at the human to human level, we want to all live in peace together. Right. Like we, that's what we want. That's the one love. We can't live in peace together. If one of us is uncomfortable in the room, then we are not in peace just because I'm in peace. We are not in peace unless we're all in peace. Um, I think that's, yeah, I think that's really um, on the mark for sure. You know, maybe it's different, like how we deal with institutions of power and try to push them to give up their power and change their power and dismantle systems that are disempowering all of us at different levels. Uh, But certainly, you know, just in one friend group, one place of worship, one block, one community, one grocery store, like, yeah, we should all be talking to each other and trying to make sure that we can that everyone is okay everyone deserves right to life everyone deserves love everyone deserves food everyone deserves a home everyone deserves to have their life be lived and mattered and that's just what it is like we want the statement all lives matter to be true but all lives can't matter until black lives matter and until indigenous lives matter and until immigrants lives matter and until women's lives matter so um That's just the end of it, you know. People have to be cognizant mm-hmm. of their internalized oppression and their their internalized colonization of people. So, yeah. Stephanie, do you have a question you would like to ask Dominique? I feel like I really like take it, but I'm just like from organizer to organizer. I have questions for Dominique. I want to have this conversation. 
Um, you asked most but of the questions. I don't quest- want to leave you guys out. You asked most of the questions I was thinking of. Dominique, the last couple of uh, minutes you've been talking about making people feel uncomfortable. And one of my favorite people ever was uh, Frank Lemire. Um, mm. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he used to say that all the time um, about how important it was that that we made ourselves uncomfortable um, in order to make change. And um, so anyway, you should, anyway, you made me think of him. So thank you. Uncomfortability promotes growth and growth is what we need to make change. So yep. I was followed by that. Yep. Oh. I have a last question. It's not really related, but it's what we always ask. Is there anything you've been reading that you might recommend? Could be um, anything at all. Yeah, I highly recommend. Um, it's a book um, it's called Lucy Parsons, Freedom, Equality and Solidarity. It's her writing and speeches from 1878 to basically 1940. Um, Lucy was the one who kind of fought for that eight, eight hour work day, five days a week, because at that time that was so um, it was a new phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And I would recommend people like if you want to understand where we as activist organizers modern day are coming from, you have to look at the past and how like our ancestors and our our family lived in years prior. So that would be a good place to start. Like people think that slavery was so long ago, but you know, we were only free after 1867. And so, um, you know, just kind of bringing it back to the core of where this all started, which was the colonization of the United States. Thank you. We'll put that on our show notes and in our bookshop list. Yeah. Do you guys need anything That's else? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I just want to ask, oh. what advice would you give to people that are, you know, where you started, maybe just angry, like, but they want to be productive. They don't want to just scream at the moon, which, you know, screaming at the moon has a lot of value, but at some point its value diminishes. <laughs> There's something else. What, what would you say to those people? Something that I have had to learn in this movement and set for myself is remember at the end of the day that you can't look at and judge someone else until you look at yourself first and you can't do anything for you can't do anything for the people if in some way you affect the people negatively as well so um you know no matter if you're religious or spiritual or you're agnostic or whatever i always say meditate and come to terms with who you are right you don't dictate don't ever tell yourself that you're a bad or good person you have to dictate whether you're helpful or unhelpful Mm -hmm. and when you say that you also have to look at did I do something unhelpful to someone? And if so, how can I change that? Because again, when it comes down to the anything you do in any movement or even in your own home, something that you may think as is good may be unhelpful to someone else. And that's a bad thing. So just don't ever say good or bad anymore. Just helpful and unhelpful. And that will change so much of your perspective on life. Mm-hmm. So. I love that. Well, thank you so much for coming. We thank are you. so grateful. Of I course. want to keep you on and just like keep talking to you. There's <laughs> so many more things I want to ask you. So uh, we'll have to have you back on at another time. Yeah, definitely. Um, um, 
And, you know, once children are vaccinated and my own kids are vaccinated, I, we need to just sit and, like, hang out anyway. Because uh, you're definitely somebody I would love to know better. But thank you so much for coming on. Of course. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to Seeing Red Nebraska, Politics from the Left. Seeing Red is a group blog edited by citizen volunteers and entirely devoted to Nebraska politics. You can support us on Patreon with a $5, $10, or $20 a month donation. Be sure to check us out at seeingrednebraska.com and on Facebook and Instagram. You can also follow us on Twitter at seeingredne or contact us via email at seeingredne at protonmail.com.